Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am talking to the man, the myth, the legend, Nick Golden, which is probably the coolest name um, we've ever had on the show, let alone he has an uh, incredible wealth of experience and knowledge. In fact, I'm literally just going to read this for the, the sake of the audience, his background. He was a fireman in the U.S. Coast Guard, security officer and a detective. He was a project manager. He's a paramedic. He's a firefighter and paramedic. Now he's a certified emergency manager with the state of Georgia. He's a sergeant in his fire department, and he's a homeland security officer, and he helps out a lot with critical infrastructure and with people and populations. He's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and uh, I'm really excited to have him on the show. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John. Happy to be here. So let's, uh, just for the sake of our audience, I, I gave this like laundry list of basically why you're amazing. Can you tell us just for the sake of uh, our audience what you're kind of doing right now? So a big part of my role for the Homeland, uh, the Homeland section at the fire department is intel gathering, intel sharing. I liaison a lot with all the different law enforcement agencies in Atlanta, which there's you know over 20 different law enforcement agencies between the federal, the state, our rail, and uh, basically, I just keep us all coordinated for different events, such as suspicious packages, uh, any Sea Bernie events that happen at any of the rail places or special event venues. So that's really is my role right now is liaisoning. Okay, so you're you're working in like this um, this cross section between, um, like, like almost threat analysis and coop. Right. Yes. Where, where you're, you know, typically people like segregate those out pretty heavily. Um, in fact, I've had I've had at least one guest who claim that it's not part of emergency management when they talk about coop. And I think that's ridiculous. But, uh, you know, for the sake of what you guys are doing, you're really combining these two like uh, separate areas into one cohesive. I mean, using the terminology package where you can identify, eliminate, and or reduce impact, right? I mean, that's kind of the job that you're working that's on. That's absolutely the goal. Through uh, TTXs, critical infrastructure assessments, the goal is to have a coup plan that's actually functional and mm -hmm. make sure that between communications, police, the special event venues, we're all uh, a bit able to deliver on that coup plan. Yeah, half the, uh, half the uh, audience right now who are getting into emergency manager are like, why are you talking about coups? Um, so a continuity operations plan is that that's what a coop is uh, just for the, their sake. Uh, let's talk about that real quick because you did, you mentioned TTXs and making like the plan actually usable. One of the things that I, I have really found is like that stakeholder involvement. And so if you can talk about like uh, like when you go into a TTX, like what are your objectives or outcomes that you're looking for? And uh, like what would you consider a win walking away from there? From a fire department specific side, mm. I like to discuss all of our resources and kind of test out through the verbal process of what would it look like if we had to have a hazmat response? Or what would it look like if we had to have a mass casualty incident with mm. multiple EMS type calls or a large fire? So that's really my goal is to test out all of our resources. Yeah. So if you're testing that out, I mean, you kind of were thrown hilariously enough, you're throwing into the fire. Gosh, I'm, I'm becoming more of a dad. <laughs> I have two kids. The puns are just natural, but you're thrown into the fire a couple of years ago because this is a fairly new role for you, right? And I've then, been in this role about three years. Okay. And then 
Uh, so a year into the job, like not only have COVID hitting, but you know, you had civil unrest happening. And so you've had some already some major incidents in Atlanta. Um, what was your perspective on that? What were some of the lessons learned through again, jumping into almost like this threat analysis and coop, you know, combo. So interestingly enough, the day that all kicked off was a Friday and we were already resources were super tasked because I had a vice president of the United States visit here all day long. And then right at you know four o'clock in the afternoon, the vice president was taken off and we were starting to get into the civil unrest. And that's really where like the Intel sharing, the Intel gathering portion came from so that our decision makers at the division chief level can start to move resources into how are we going to respond to all these fires? How are we going to make sure these firemen aren't getting rocks thrown at them while they're fighting fires so we can have security? So yeah. it's kind of like a the continuity of operations plan for civil unrest was spoken of, but it wasn't really tested. So we kind of got a hard, fast lesson. <laughs> That's usually how it goes, right? Like there's so many disasters and there's, or there's, you know, it's an innumerable amount of like what ifs. And we can plan for the most likely and or high frequency. But those low frequency, high impact events, I mean, they they always test you, even if you, th- if you even if you thought about them before, for sure. Um, so in, in terms of putting out the fires and protecting firefighters. Now, I like to ask people who bring this up on the show because we have lots of different opinions on this. I've definitely given my opinion. Um, and so I'm just curious to know your thoughts as somebody who works specifically in threat analysis and protecting, you know, not only the firefighters, but the people around them, you know, there's a, there's a a rumor or a a lingering thought going out there right now that firefighters, you know, should become more like fire marshals where they should carry a weapon. What are your general thoughts on that? My thoughts on it are, and I'm a certified peace officer in the state of Georgia. So I carry a gun at work every day. Hmm. There are certain sections within the fire department, mainly our fire marshal, arson investigators, but also our Office of Professional Standards. Mm. And then the Homeland Security section, they're all Georgia State certified peace officers. And during the civil unrest days, we were expected to and did provide security for the equipment and the firefighters that were fighting fires. You know, of course, we were overrun at certain times and we had to just disconnect the hoses from the truck and take off because you know, what good are we if we can't protect ourselves? Yeah, good point. So uh, my thoughts are certain people in the fire department should be certified peace officers. And as long as you're maintaining the going to the range twice a year and qualifying with your local police department or whoever certifies you, then Mm. there's no reason you can't carry a firearm. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. The L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3 Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. The Readiness Lab is trailblazing disaster readiness. Early access for the highly anticipated course, Emergency Management Response for Dynamic Populations is currently live. Think you have what it takes? Join us in Atlanta for an immersive experience. 
Space is limited to 40. Go to the readinesslab.com forward slash training to learn more. Okay, let's jump back in. Yeah, I, I actually like the uh, that perspective. It's um, it's not a one or the other. There's kind of a mixed bag there. You know, I, I've shared that, you know, people, because of, uh, you know, FEMA being within Department of Homeland Security, EMAs are starting to ha- have the same kind of thing where they're, they're requiring their local emergency managers to start carrying a weapon. And I think that's kind of ridiculous because, uh, you know, the role of the emergency manager is really supposed to be at the strategic level supporting those uh, those tacticians to getting everything else out of the way so they can be most effective but i like what you're saying i like you know obviously fire marshals carry carry a weapon or or you know peace officers but firefighters need to do the job that their job is to put out the fire or to, or to do medical rescue and so I, I appreciate that response uh, a lot i will say i was just at the range what last weekend with my brother-in-law there was a lot of people who couldn't shoot very well there. So <laughs> I would say more than twice a year would probably be a good, good call out. But um, ammo is getting expensive, though, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, that ended, honestly, for anyone who wants to go get certified as a peace officer, it's a big time ask. It's, you know, about three months worth of training for the police mm-hmm. academy and then several in-service trainings for use of force and all that a year, plus the two two days at the range. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I just, uh, I, I think I talked about this on a previous episode where I went to um, the graduation of uh, a boy that I helped, uh, now a man, I shouldn't call him a boy. But, uh, you know, I was a youth leader and um, he just uh, became a um, an MP with, uh, with the Army. And um, yeah, it was really excellent to see, like, not only his professionalism just dramatically improve, but, um, you know, he was talking about, you know, he, he was carrying a weapon. I didn't see a 17-year-old boy anymore. I saw, like, a 22-year-old man. It was super weird. But, um, you know, I think it really all does come down to training um, and, um, you know, making sure that whatever your job is, you're doing that job, right? Yeah. Firefighter does that job, but fire marshal or otherwise. You know, I, I did actually, I did some of my research on Homeland Security officers, and um, integrating that with um, local or state and how that differs from the federal perspective. One thing that I thought was incredibly interesting about, um, about Georgia's perspective is that you are actively, and you even mentioned it, you're actively supporting and or working with law enforcement. And I, I will say that you know, for all the rumors you hear about the South and, and people not working together or different groups or whatever, not working together. Every time I've been into Georgia, like I was in Georgia for tornadoes and, um, you know, I had somebody say like, oh, you know, I bet there's a lot of segregation down there, for example. And I, the Super Bowl party that I was invited to from the guy from GEMA, it was like two huge families from totally two different cultural backgrounds and just like totally integrated. And I was like, I don't know what people are talking about. Well, the same thing is happening with fire and law enforcement. Traditionally, like if you go to New York, like those people won't even talk to each other. They hate each other. This sounds like you guys are really being integrated and helping each other out and doing emergency services in the right way. Hopefully that's the outside perspective. No, that's absolutely correct. We get along great down here in Georgia. And uh, I think, again, it goes back to, like you were saying before, your role. My role is, you know, protecting the fireman or we work arson cases. We do render safe on white powder letters and kind of stay in that hazmat realm. Mm -hmm. But I don't delve too far into investigations of 
domestic terrorism or threats through the mail. Like I, I just kind of stay in my role. I'll help out with SWAT medic work as a paramedic, but it's not my, I'm not an investigator for them. So mm. everyone's That's staying great. in the role. We get along great. Yeah. It's funny how that works, right? Like do you, <laughs> just do your job and everybody wins. Um, yes. Yes. It's, it's different. You know, it's kind of funny when you say stay in your lane, that's kind of actually a pun for law enforcement and fire because they do so much on highways, but um, does, doesn't really pan out. I'm actually reading a book. I actually just looked this up. I'm reading a book. I'm about halfway through. It's called Recounting the Anthrax Attacks. And you're talking okay. about white, white powder. I'm about halfway through the book. And um, in this book, it, it claims that at one point the CDC just stopped, like just refused, absolutely refused to hand over the data to the FBI when there was a new anthrax case. And I was like, talk about like the worst possible scenario where you think you're having a terrorist attack in through the mail, letters through the mail and different uh, bu bureaucrats essentially don't, you know, personalities get in the way and they can't get the job done. So as a guy who's doing it effectively and, and, and doing it the right way, besides like, you know, stay in your lane kind of stuff, what was, what are some of the things that you think are major successes where if you're working with stakeholders or, you know, counterparts and other agencies, how can somebody who is not doing it very well right now or being frustrated by that process, how do you think they can get some quick wins? I think the best thing you can do is reach out to neighboring agencies or your state fusion center or even some of the federal assets and explain why there's a need to know for you and why it doesn't harm to have yourself included on different distribution lists or just be in the conversation so that if there's a white powder letter that pops up in a county next door, they can say, hey, John, by the way, this, you know, the, we're getting two of our schools got white powder letters. If you hear anything about a white powder letter in your jurisdiction and it comes from this address or is uh, I got postal stamp from here, just be expecting it. It's, it's not anthrax. It's just mm. baking soda. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, maybe I should tell my dealer to stop sending it through the mail. No, um, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> Does it really? That's, that's ridiculous. Absolutely. Um, oh my gosh. So, Let's let's switch over here real quick because, as noted, you have a, you have so much experience, and you're really a generalist in, in, a, in a in the truest sense. And um, it's very impressive to look at that resume. In terms of some of your experiences, were there different disasters or events that you were like, "Oh, this has helped me define who I want to be as you know, either a leader or um, that kind of pushed you to the next level." When I was moved to headquarters, so let me give you a short background on how that happened. I, I was riding big red truck, answering fire and EMS calls every day and going to school mm -hmm. for my degree in Homeland Security. The fire department was paying for a portion of that. When I graduated with my bachelor's degree in Homeland, they offered me this position at headquarters. And all of a sudden, it, like the first three weeks was kind of uncomfortable. What do I do? Walking on mm -hmm. eggshells. After that, I realized that I'm kind of in a spot here at headquarters to affect change and be a policymaker. And also, you know, I have the autonomy to if I want to go run a, you know, go out on the street and pick up any calls or work as a paramedic, work as a firefighter, or even backup police officers. I can do it because I've got the background. So That's the awesome. move to headquarters was uh, so far a career changer for me. Yeah, I'm sure that would have been. Um, so I was on the national strike team. And I was used to deploying all the time. 
And then I switched over to a tech company. I was recruited at a tech company and I like died inside. I couldn't handle the pace of just like people talking, you know, they were like, you know, people are very passionate about their jobs typically, but I'm passionate about disasters and I'd be sitting in the room and they'd be like talking about some new product coming out. And I'm like, man, I just don't care about this at all. <laughs> it, it was like crushing me. And so I was, that's why I like went off into Doberman because I was like, okay, like I have kids now. I, I don't want to travel all the time, but I still have that itch to be like in a disaster response. Like it, it's actually a pretty heavy itch. Um, how do you like manage, especially when you get into leadership roles, you pull away more and more from like why you got into the field. Right. And, and how, how do you manage either those emotions and, or like, how do you scratch that itch where it's appropriate now? You know, this year, one of my initiatives was to, as bad as it sounds, not go to as many meetings that do not really pertain to me. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a problem being situationally aware. But my thing is, if I get out to the fire stations or if I get out to working scenes, whether they're related to Homeland Security or not, it kind of jogs the memory of the guys mm. that there is a Homeland Security section. And maybe if I run into a scenario on an EMS call where there's several gallons of bleach stored at this guy's house, but we're there for abdominal Jeez. pain. Maybe they're like, Oh, maybe I should call Nick just to, <laughs> to see something, say something thing. So getting mm. out on the streets, talking with the guys and getting on scene mm. kind of scratches the itch for me, even if it's uh, not always in my wheelhouse. Yeah. You know what? Uh, good point. I, I, um, part of the part of emergency management that I like so much is just working with people and helping people. And so like even in the private sector now, like when we're working on a plan and we're recording with all these stakeholders, like for me, that's how I'm, I'm kind of doing, it. even though it's like not the stress or the tempo of response that I love, I, you know, there's kind of an adrenaline, I wouldn't say adrenaline rush, but you know, if you, you're, if you're in it, you get it right. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, you're, if you lose, you lose big and you hate yes. that feeling. And so, um, like that, that drive to, to have that, um, but now like we're like, I'll get comments from even the podcast. Like we'll get uh, an, um, like we'll get uh, an emergency manager or we'll have somebody reach out and say like, Hey, I, I thank you for that guest because you know, now I, I overcome this problem or, you know, it's like, Hey, like, can I get some advice on this? And you're like, Hey, we're actually helping people out in, in some kind of way. And it's kind of cool. Um, but in terms of your background, now, I, I didn't bring this up in the beginning, but I'm going to bring this up now. Um, you, for the audience's sake, you might recognize the last name here, Golden. I just wrote an article on the Disaster Tough page. Um, it's called Morning Thoughts, and I'm just going to kind of do this randomly. But the first one was about Ashley Loria Golden, who is our COO at Doberman, but she's also been on the podcast a couple times. And Nick and Ashley are married. They're like the dream powerhouse emergency services couple in Atlanta. Like you really don't want to mess with them. Between Homeland Security and the guy's peace officer, to the both paramedics, like they know how to help and know know now how not to help you, right? So it's it's a uh, it's pretty cool. But um, in that in that article, it's called the Ashley model for those who want to look it up. And, and I gave five different tips based off of Ashley's experiences of how to boost your career. And I thought I find it fascinating that Nick is followed the exact same pattern just by looking at his experiences um, and, and that perspective. 
Ashley on her first show, which is where I pulled this data from, talked about uh, when she was a paramedic, um, there was a car crash and the the car hit the the ambulance and she had to still get out and help help the person who hit her ambulance. And I'm sure you've had those kind of experiences, too. Were there experiences uh, either as a first responder or now where you're like, man, I never thought like I would have to deal with this situation and it, um, you know, again, it's a, just kind of a fascinating perspective of, you know, the, the low frequency, high, high consequence events for you. I will say, actually, yes, I have one that comes to mind that you bring up on my way home. I take the same route every day, much like everybody on here probably does. And as I was about two blocks off from getting on the interstate, I heard a call for a jumper go out. Hmm. And as a fireman, I've gone to a million jumper calls. But I've, we always stay back and let the negotiators move in and talk to them. And the fireman's role is to kind of set up the airbag and kind of catch the jumper should they go over or just kind of handle the EMS mental health care aspect with the ambulance crew afterwards. So anyway, back to the story, the, the jumper call came out and it was on my way home and I was 30 seconds away, maybe. And as I approached, I saw a male with his legs swung over the wall it was only like a three foot wall and it was probably 50 feet down onto the highway during rush hour huh. and i was totally you know i thought this is not this is not going to be a legitimate call this is going to be a homeless guy who's walking to go under the bridge and take a nap and hmm. as, as many calls are but uh i was able to get out of my vehicle let get on the radio let everybody know it was a legit jumper kind of give some directions of where we should shut traffic down if it was going to go on that long hmm. and as I approached the mail, he had a knife. So I'm going in between like the mental health aspect of Jeez. what can I do to talk this, you know, to make friends, talk to this guy and kind of uh, show some empathy and sympathy towards whatever is bothering him that day. But also as a peace officer, I'm not wanting to get stabbed today and I can't <laughs> have this 10 foot zone or so of where he can move so fast that he could get me. So yeah. Anyway, long story short, I was able to talk to him for a few minutes. Then an APD zone officer arrived and I got him to drop the knife and we pulled him to the ground and kind of got him the help he needed. But it was definitely not planned for the day to make new friends on the bridge and <laughs> pull somebody off. And You know, to even have the situational awareness to, you know, this is what I, I find with people who are inexperienced. Every time they get a call like that, something's happening, like, one of my first jobs and uh, was at uh, a hospital system and we got a call that there was, or there was a, a small power outage that happened. And I swear my counterpart was like acting like it was doomsday, like the end of the world that this office building had a power outage for, for an hour, for 45 minutes. And um, I, then I went over to the national team and we got a, we got a notice that we'll just say a man-made incident was, uh, was going to happen in the city and that we needed to be uh, on alert for that. And my boss was like, all right, it's probably not. It's, it's fascinating that you were able to first, like, you didn't freak out, right? Like, you were like, okay, like, I've done this a hundred times. This is what it could be. And then as the situation progressed, you rose your, your level of, you know, you're, you pulled in your training 10 foot. 10 foot wide you're already coordinating like what traffic should be doing it's it's actually pretty cool you, you you shared like this like five second thing but if you really break it down 
you're already doing all the things an emergency manager does, plus all the first responder stuff, plus fire, plus police. It's uh, it, it, that's actually a really good example of like what people should aspire to become in terms of emergency services. Because again, judging situation, uh, managing multiple aspects, um, ha- like the totality of the event versus just like you know, person on a bridge. It's it's actually uh, thank you for sharing that story because it's it's like nailed it for sure. No, my pleasure. And you know, as you know, with emergency management, the hardest part is considering all of the variables that go into the equation, and then trying to invest in what's the police role going to be, what's the fire department role what, on from an EM side. What do we need on the back half of this as far as uh, paperwork for federal funding? Is if it's going to be a disaster? So there's just like a, a multitude of factors that the regular zone officer, the regular lieutenant riding on a fire engine, never consider that for emergency managers, it's, it's a myriad of things. Well, you bring up an interesting point. Um, we have been attacking at the readiest lab. Uh, what we would say is we're trying to innovate emergency management from within. So I, I work fairly closely. I wouldn't say fairly closely, but I I've had the opportunity a few times to go out and observe and uh, instruct at the medical USAR training for the federal teams. And they're all firefighters. They have to be paramedic firefighters to, to go into this training. And I'll ask them, what do you think emergency management is? And I will tell you that I got like several responses, the exact same thing. You're the guy who brings the water bottles, right? I was (laughs) like, why do you think emergency managers bring the water bottles? But you're talking about managing variables. And so I would like you to maybe, for the sake of our audience, what do you think are the gaps of emergency management? Like, where do you think we need to improve so that fire and police want to work with us more? And what do you think that the misconceptions are from fire and police that, um, you know, they think you think that they could you maybe a gap or, or something to identify where you say, hey, this is your pitch to fire and police of why you should use emergency managers? So I'll start with the misconceptions or the misunderstandings. And I think for the police chief, the fire chief, or anyone at a higher ranking command level, their thoughts are that this emergency management agency wants to come in here and tell me how to police or tell me how to fight fires. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm the fire chief and I'm, I tell people how we fight fires around here, but. <laughs> I've actually had that experience. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, honestly, it happens between police and fire, as we talked about before, you know, it's, it's my scene. No, it's your scene. Yeah. But uh, the way it should play out for a good emergency manager in my mind is to have those relationships prove yourself before you get to a work and incident scene through going to the TTXs, through reaching out, through helping the fire department and the police department with grant funding throughout the year and kind of proving your worth Mm. so that you don't have to impose yourself or force your way into an incident command bus. You're invited and you're, you're getting those distro lists or getting the command page to keep you situationally aware of what's going on. I love that. And I, and I appreciate that. My dream scenario, and I've had it a few times where uh, luckily for me, because, you know, I would always go in and it would always be a new community, usually a new community, and I didn't know anybody. And so it was like really hard to develop those relationships. But if the emergency manager, the local emergency manager was able to make that pitch, then I could essentially attach to that. And it was so much easier to do that. And I, and I honestly think like the best the best outcomes were when 
the tacticians were taking on the immediate immediate threat and then it was my job to figure out cascading impacts or what was coming down the line so that we could give them a heads up so like basically my my perspective is that the emergency manager in that room should be the person um clearing all the other debris out of the way so that the first responder can do their job while they're actually taking care of the physical debris on site or, or taking care of those people. And so um, like when you're working in tandem like that, when you're having that situational awareness or when they, you know, you can say, Hey, you might want to be aware that this, this other event's going to come and hit you, you know, down the line. Um, I, I think that's uh, probably the, the best value for tacticians. probably. Yeah, absolutely. That. And uh, the reason I mentioned, you know, things like the grant funding is there's a lot that goes in as everyone on here probably knows, as far as having coop plans, having the fire plans and submitting them to the state EMA that the fire chiefs and the police chiefs, it's just not their wheelhouse. You know, they, they can speak right. about why they need equipment to mitigate this certain disaster or this emergency, but they can't you know, connect the dots to get the funding from the feds to get the equipment needed. So EMA yeah, definitely, if, if you have the relationships and you prove your worth, you'll be invited to all the meetings and, TTXs and all that good stuff. Yeah, it takes time, right? Like, uh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, the firefighter community, uh, police is kind of like that, but the firefighter community, man, if you haven't proved yourself, you're worthless. True. That's what I've, I, like, I, it took me a while to gain the trust of like these firefighters that um, I get to work with at USAR and just like, hey, like, hey, like, I do have your best interest in mind. I want to do this the right way. Be humble a little bit and say, like, this isn't my wheelhouse. I want to learn. Um, although I will say that as soon as you say you want to learn, they're all like, hey, how do you feel about becoming a firefighter? And I'm like, wait, hold up. Pump the I'll brakes. get you an application, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can write you a, a recommendation. Ah, it's okay. The same thing happens with the military. I work a lot with the military, with, uh, with Doberman, especially with NATO lately. And I will say every time I talk to one of those guys, they're like, hey, have you thought about joining the reserves for my specific? They're like, hey, hold up. <laughs> Uh, I like being an emergency manager, but I will say all that stuff can uh, can and should add value to your job. I mean, talking about generalist, uh, maybe that's what we call this episode. I don't know. But, um, you know, your paramedic experience, your firefighter, your peace officer experience, your homeland security officer experience, I'm sure adds a ton of value to being a certified emergency manager as well because it allows you to see the different perspectives and to be able to talk to them in their language. You know, that's the other problem that I find is that like you could be saying the exact same thing, but it means totally two different things to, you know, the different cultures or different you know worlds. Right. Absolutely. So as I'll, I'll bring it up specifically with the law enforcement community. It was hard for me to get accepted into the law enforcement circle. Right. Cause I'm not a zone officer. I've never done patrols and, beat foot beats for years and years. I'm the firefighter that's getting invited in to law enforcement circle, but I also happen to be a certified peace officer. So after I proved myself by helping them do the SWAT medic role and sharing intelligence their way as they're sharing it my way, that, uh, that really helped to prove my worth. And I think that's why I'm now accepted and invited to lunch and all that good stuff. Well, um, I will certainly take you out to lunch next time I'm in uh, Atlanta and we can uh, we can uh, shoot the breeze because uh, obviously your um, uh, your advice here on this episode. Thank you again so much for coming on. 
and uh, just just sharing the myriad of examples of not well, like literally from your story of the the jumper on the bridge to talking about you know coordination and stakeholders and training and all the things you're talking a lot about pre-disaster you know uh, relationship building and how that can benefit you in a disaster and uh you know if we uh if we ever cross paths in a disaster then hopefully this episode will get me in in your inner circle but uh thanks again so much nick for coming on the show Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I just want to put it out there for any of your listeners. If you have any fire department folks that are interested in starting a Homeland Security section, I know of several in the country that I uh, work with. Feel free to reach out to me and I'd love to talk about how I can help your department get a Homeland section started. That's awesome. So you can reach out to Nick a couple different ways. One, um, obviously LinkedIn, all the, the, all the standard ways. But if you t- uh, if on on this episode, when we post it, just say like tag Nick or say like, Hey Nick, I have a question, put it out to their community so that Nick can see it. He can respond, but it also will help out other people who may have the same question. If you do have more of a sensitive question about Homeland security and how to integrate that, definitely send us an email at contact. So we're sending our email here, the contact at the readiness lab, and we'll pass that over to Nick. Nick, do you, um, is there another way that you would like them to, to reach out to you or will that work for you? If you hit me on LinkedIn, I'll get right back to you. Perfect. Perfect. So uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a great resource. We'll tag him in all of our posts and our videos. So make sure you check out there. If you like this episode, this is my favorite part of the episode. As I always say, the lame part. If you like this episode, you got to give us a five star rating and subscribe. It lets us know that this uh, this content was valuable to you. If you have a question or a comment, make sure you tell us uh, in, in the um, in the comment section of our social media posts. Because, you know, lots of people have the similar questions and we'd love for the community to respond there. And uh, we'll see you next week.